Blog Talk Radio. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love of justice. Hi, welcome to the Kazoo Vine for February 16th, 2020. I'm your host, David McLaughlin. Joining me as always, welcome Catherine Smith. Greetings from Atlanta. And welcome Tim Shiflett. Good evening, sir. Yes, this feels a little strange. We're actually on at 7 o'clock on a Sunday night. Hadn't happened in about uh, three or four weeks. Uh, but good to have you all back, and, and speaking of uh, continuity, uh, a guest that's been with us numerous times for uh, several years now, um, from now the Washington Examiner, David Mark is going to join us. He also writes from some other publications, and he's going to come on about 7.40, 40 minutes into the podcast, and we're going to discuss with him a myriad of issues. But until then, um, we had another election since our last broadcast eight days ago. And it went much smoother. It was a primary. Who went and voted. You got results pretty quickly. They had the winner that night, um, kind of how elections, you know, are, it's nice when they go that way. Um, and that would be the state of New Hampshire. Um, Tim, first off, let's say somebody says let's keep one and let's get rid and change one um, of the early two traditional states. How much did – New Hampshire help itself with how organized the process went compared to Iowa. Yeah, I mean, mo- most people, like what, 100% of people nearly are saying, let's keep primaries, let's get rid of caucuses, because there was, you know, the, the New Hampshire primary did exactly what it was supposed to do. The vote came in exactly as it was supposed to come in, even though it was very close. We we saw step by step what was happening, and uh, it was just a hundred times better than than what happened in Iowa, don't you think? Yeah, and obviously voter, you know, transparency and um, vote security and all those things, you know, become more and more important. And I don't think anybody in Iowa, um, you know, was trying to do anything underhanded. I think it was just an incredibly confusing process. Um, with some apps getting involved and whatnot, um, and, and that caused a lot of the problems. Catherine, the guy in Iowa, the, the party director, um, executive director there, lost his job, or he resigned, I should say, um, you know, in, out of all this. Uh, how, how could, what does New Hampshire look like in comparison? Oh, it was much smoother and and obviously more organized and you know, I mean, Iowa was a mess. They made so many mistakes on the run-up to it with this app and lack of training and all these things that we discussed last time. But, um, yeah, I mean, I um, I understand uh, the sort of um, enchantment with caucuses that, they seem more uh, grassroots or 
but they're just not function, functioning properly, and they really do leave a lot of people out that want to par- that may or may not want to participate. And I think that should be. I mean, the the chaos around the counting and all that is one thing, but but the fact that you know it's it's a very long process. People who have families or multiple jobs can't participate. It's uh, very public and. Some people prefer not to have their votes be public for, you know, a variety of reasons, which are all legitimate. So, and, and also it's contrary to our sort of, you know, privacy of, a, of the vote. So, yeah, I think we're, we're going to have to really look at the viability of uh, caucuses going forward. I don't know how that's going to work, though. I mean, it's, these are longstanding traditions. States are going to have to move away from it, and coincidentally, I listened to a book this past week by Jane Cleb, the um, uh, executive director, or I'm sorry, the party chair of the Nebraska um, Democratic Party, and she talked about how she, uh, they had moved Nebraska away from caucuses because it, for that very reason, one of the things you mentioned is less people participate, and you want more people to participate, and then she made the case if you know people – pick up a primary ballot, three straight elections um, for a certain party, they're usually that party member for life. And so you want to get more people in the process so they feel like a member of your party. And that can cut either way. I mean, that can, you know, could help the Republicans too, conversely, if you go to primaries. Um, but it was interesting how she talked about moving Nebraska away. Um, it, there's, there's is just not as famous because it's not the first one. Um, but that is a state right. that is very similar to Iowa, um, right down to the corn. Well, um, let's kind of talk about the results. Bernie Sanders won by, what was it, like 1.8% of the vote. 1.3. Um, 1.3. It kept going down. Pete Buttigieg once again really had a you know really good showing. And this one, to me, in some ways his second place showing in New Hampshire – a neighboring state to Vermont, um, in some ways, is more impressive than his first place showing because both of them were so incredibly close. Um, who do you think kind of is the winner out of this thing, Tim? Well, uh, a Buddha, Buddha uh, judge obviously is a big winner out of this. He's, you know, he's. Uh, Still, still, his campaign is still coming on. Uh, a lot of people still don't know who he is. He still doesn't have the the large amount of money and organization that some of the other candidates have. He's he's basically coming out of nowhere. Uh, you you know, as bad as as you know, I, I personally hate to say it. Bernie Sanders has got to be considered a winner. He won. He won. You know. Even if it was in the state next door, even if he didn't win by as much as he won four years ago, he still won. He could still stand up there on election night and say, we won. Amy Klobuchar is another one. Who would have thought she would have been pulling 19.8% of the vote, getting six delegates, and finishing third in New Hampshire? Um that that's that's remarkable considering that she's come from basically nowhere to do it. The big losers, of course, had to be Warren and Biden, and we lost three candidates after the polls closed. Yang, 
Patrick and Bennett all out. And now we're down to eight eight candidates. Yeah, yeah, still still a good many though. Um Catherine, as far as the actual candidates, um, how do you see the winners and the losers? Oh, I definitely think that um Elizabeth Warren is, is the loser in that. I mean she's right it's it's her neighborhood. She should have I mean I would I expected her to come in second or third. Um and I think that was that that's gonna be that's gonna leave a mark, I think. And of course Biden, but I think Biden's just on a on a um slide at this point. Um and Buddha Judge, uh I think everyone was surprised by that showing in New Hampshire. Of course, you know, you have to give credit to Bernie Sanders. He won, like Tim said, but um I think it was uh it seems like it was a hard win, uh at that such a close margin and and uh, coming after another close margin in uh, Iowa, so I think the I think it's uh, I think it's still uh, sort of anyone's game. I think we're we're I think Elizabeth Warren and Joe Biden don't have much longer to show to win. They've got to win something. Uh, Klobuchar. She's strong, you know. She, I was, I saw her on the news shows this morning, and she's gonna get, she's gonna keep fighting, but she needs to win something too. I mean, she's got to show some, you know, real strength in, in somewhere. Yeah, and and um, well, let me ask you this, Catherine, as a follow up. You see, I completely agree. Elizabeth Warren's got to win somewhere. Where does she win? I don't know. I don't know. I honestly don't know. I mean, South Carolina, I think, is going to be Biden. I think Steyer's going to do well in South Carolina. I've just been hearing about some of the things that he's been doing there, and I think think we may be surprised at the amount of uh, African-American support that he gets uh, in a state like South Carolina. and I think because Biden's on this slide, I'm not sure how strong his support in South Carolina is, how how, how much holding power he's got there. Um, and then we've got, you know, Klobuchar, Biden, or, uh, Bernie, and Buttigieg. We have to, I'm not sure how they'll how that'll sort out in South Carolina. But I don't see Elizabeth Warren doing well in South Carolina. Yeah, so and I that's know. the reason I think. Or Nevada. Yeah, the, the, yeah uh, Joe Biden, for positive, negative, he's got South Carolina. You're going to go there. That's your test. If you can win it, you're in it. You may get some momentum. You've got a plan. Elizabeth Warren doesn't have that state. I mean, because your home state doesn't count, so it isn't Massachusetts. And I don't see anywhere else. Uh, Tim, do you see what her plan is? No, I don't see it now. Now to Nevada, um, I'm, I'm looking at the newest poll, the newspaper out there in Vegas, and it shows Sanders with 25, Biden 18, Warren at 13, Steyer at 11, Booty Judge at 10, and Klobuchar at 
10. Sanders is very popular, at least so far, according to the polling in that state with his with uh, uh, Latino voters. Um, a weak third place for Warren wouldn't really do her any good no. out there, I don't think. Uh, South Carolina, she's running no better than fourth in any poll. And with the Buttigieg and Klobuchar campaigns ascending, uh, she could really tank there. Yeah, I'm, I'm with y'all. I see nowhere for her to go uh, to win anywhere. Nowhere. Well, then, then she may be the first well, major casualty. Well, if if there's no plan to win. And maybe there's, she's got the plan that we don't see. But if there's no plan to win, then why stay in? They always hope lightning will strike, man. They do. That Some of them just don't know when to say it's over. And uh, maybe in her mind she thinks it's not over. Uh, but I just I don't see where she goes. Like you said, Biden's got a plan. Win South Carolina. That's his plan. Um, of course, Booty Judge and Klobuchar, with their great showings, are not going anywhere. We know Sanders is never going anywhere. And then you've got the Bloomberg factor coming in on Super Tuesday. Warren keeps saying, well, we're running very well in the Super Tuesday states. Uh, man, if she goes 0 for 4 and looks bad doing it, uh, what, what's she going to win on Super Tuesday? Yeah. Yeah, it's almost like she's playing spoiler, spoiler to who, I don't know. Well, let's uh, well, well, let's talk about Amy Klobuchar. I mean, she, she finished a surprising third um, in New Hampshire. Uh, wasn't she third again in, in um, Iowa as well? Yeah. Um, it's been, you know, hey, two bronze medals, really surprising. But once again, where's the gold come, Catherine? I mean, where does she win oh, yeah, an she, actual state? She actually, uh, Chuck Todd asked her that point blank this morning, where are you going to win? And she didn't have an answer. Minnesota. <laughs> once again, doesn't count. Um, yeah. Because, you know, home states never but, count. But, yeah, I don't, I don't know where she wins. Either, uh, she said she's they're going to do great on Super Tuesday, but of course she said that. What else is she going to yeah. say? I mean, yeah, she's not going to uh, say I don't. There's, but, but I don't know. I don't. I, I mean, I think she's in a similar um, position to Elizabeth Warren, except that she's, you know, ahead of her uh, in terms. She does have a couple delegates, and she does. Ha- she has some surprising results in her. In her uh, hand, whereas I think we're all, we were all disappointed, but I think everyone was disappointed and a, a bit surprised by Elizabeth showing Elizabeth Warren showing in both Iowa and New Hampshire. Don't you? I weren't you. I mean, I thought she'd come in third. Yeah, I think uh, Klobuchar and Warren kind of flipped in expectations. I mean, still, once again, I think we'd be asking the same question. Although you might see Elizabeth Warren being able to go from third to first faster than Amy Klobuchar, particularly with Pete Buttigieg doing well 
and Joe Biden at least having a plan to stay in through South Carolina. Um, so, so I think that kind of cuts there, too, because she has to then dip out of that moderate pool, whereas Elizabeth Warren would be, I'm more progressive than most of the field, but I'm not Bernie, and more importantly, my supporters aren't Bernie's supporters, who they're about the least popular people in, in the Democratic uh, primary right now is his supporters, I think. Um, well, let, let's can um, you know talk more about this with other ones. You know, we had Michael Bennett get out. I don't know that he was getting enough votes share to matter. Deval Patrick, same thing. Uh, Andrew Yang got out of the race. Now he was getting, you know, definable numbers. Uh, Tim, where do you think his vote goes? Well, boy, that's a good question. But you would think they would all go together in a block because they were so devoted and cohesive and right with him. They were a lot as devoted as Bernie Sanders supporters, only about an eighth as large. So you would think wherever they gravitate, it would be toward, uh, you know, one candidate. Who that candidate is, I just do not know. Uh, I think that Buttigieg might have a shot at those people. Uh, I do not know about the older candidates. You would think the younger candidates would have first shot at these people, uh, although I could be wrong. Yeah, um, Catherine, any thoughts on what happens with you know really all three of those candidates getting out, where some of those votes may go? Well, were there really any votes for Bennett? Uh, yeah, I, I think, it, it's I think really he got about Yang 900 votes in New Hampshire. Yeah, it's Yang. It's yeah, the, so the... Yang is the big one. And right. um, I, I tend to agree that he could. they could go to Buttigieg. They could go to Klobuchar, um, maybe. Uh, I think they're looking for someone more uh, charismatic than Klobuchar, so it might be more likely that they had to boot a judge. Uh, it, it would be interesting to hear what. Yeah. Um, although I don't know how Yang is you know, dynamic saying. he is. I mean, he's kind of like the, the sensible guy. Um, you know, that's, that's kind of uh, what he's known to be is he's real thoughtful, but pretty calm and how he approaches things. And some people have speculated that, you know, Bernie Sanders would pick up um, more of, um, Yang support the not because he has that huh. I, I don't want to say cultish but that you know niche market more that you know Bernie Sanders has so that would be interesting now let's kind of talk about this other question with Bernie Sanders they keep showing poll after poll that says roughly three quarters of the electorate you know is not want Bernie Sanders but then that leads a good 25 maybe up to 30 percent that do and that's where he's winning because the field is so fractured. If the field starts narrowing down, Tim, um, does it get to the point where Bernie Sanders has that hard ceiling, or can he overcome and um, you know cause people to change their mind on if they want him or not? Well, it depends on when it is. We've got to look back four years ago and to the Republican yep. Party. They kept saying that then. Like I've lost um, uh, I, we're here, David. Do you hear us? 
Catherine. I'm here. Do you hear me? Okay. Well, I'll just keep talking because we're on the air. Whatever the problem is, is with David. Um, Four years ago, they kept saying, well, if the field narrows down and the anti-Trump vote uh, comes together, Donald Trump is winning these primaries with less than 40% of the vote, then they'll beat him. Well, unfortunately, uh, the field did not narrow fast enough, and it just never did happen. And by the time it did happen, it was just basically (laughs) too late. Uh, So, you you, you know, I know know a lot of people are are nervous about that now, Um, and they – they have to wonder. Uh, I, I'm telling you, Sanders has got the most devoted following of any candidate in this race. There is no doubt about that, and those people are going to vote for him. Um, and they're it, and they're not likely to vote for anybody. They're unlikely to easily vote for anyone else if he doesn't get the nomination. That's right. the concern and, I have. And, and we already know that he's going to stay in the contest until the convention. He did four years ago. He's going to do it again. Uh, there's no reason really right now for him not to because he has been anointed the front runner by the mainstream media. And I guess you would have to look at him as at least a co-front runner with Buttigieg, uh, having finished within a whisker of winning Iowa and then winning New Hampshire outright and being ahead in the polls in the bottom. The newest uh, um, poll of South Carolina actually has him having moved into second place ahead of Steyer. Um so, you know, he, he's gaining some steam. He's not going anywhere, and he has all the money that he needs and all the support and all the organization that he needs to go all the way. Um, what you keep waiting yeah. to happen is for uh, the more moderate candidates to win a down and rally around one candidate. Yeah, that's, I don't that's think we're we going to have our answer until at least uh, Super Tuesday. David, are you back with yeah, us? I'm back. I don't know what happened. I sound like you heard my question, which was perfect, um, about yeah. Bernie Sanders. Um, so yeah. that worked out good. Well, um, well, and I think you're right about winnows down. Now, that could be this. What if um, – if Joe Biden wins South Carolina, Pete Buttigieg has obviously done well in two other states, winning Iowa and finishing such a close second in New Hampshire. So they would both stay in the race together. Um, Amy Glenn-Wishar is the wild card at that point. Um, but let's say we get to this, and actually the 538 model showed that the um, most likely outcome right now is a contested convention. Let's say Bernie Sanders has the most delegates but falls short of the majority, and People feel about like they do now, whereas they want somebody – the majority of the Democratic Party, a large majority, wants somebody else. And the polls show that he would, let's say, lose to Donald Trump. What do the Democratic um, convention goers at that point 
do, Catherine? Do they just go with somebody totally different because you got to win this thing in November? Or do they go, oh, well, Bernie Sanders has the most delegates. Even if he loses, um, we, we have to go with him. Hmm. I, I, you know, I think it's really hard to talk about that right now. I think we have to look at what happens, I guess, I mean, as we get closer to Super Tuesday, um, you know, what happens in Nevada, what happens in South Carolina, um, I just, I think it's too early to say, you know, okay, we're going to, we're going to, you know, so either Buttigieg, Bloomberg, or Biden, um, God, all these bees uh, (laughs) are, are next in line. And Bernie can't win, so we have a you know serious convention come to Jesus moment and pick one of them and and hope that the Bernie Sanders supporters will understand the circumstances, but I don't think they will. I mean, I just uh, I didn't participate but I looked at and read a very long thread with some of my very good friends uh on Facebook yesterday about um people saying I'm not I'm not going to vote for anybody but Bernie if he doesn't get the nomination this whole thing that we went through before um I can't I can't vote for anybody else and you know some of some of the people who I really these are people that I really respect but some of the other ones were like what are you crazy I mean, we're talking about the difference between reelecting Donald Trump and re- and electing a Democrat. How can you how can you sit here and say this? But they were they were locked. They were not going to fold. So I, I'm worried. That concerns me, um, obviously. But I think we have people on the other side who are like, I'm not voting for Bernie. But it, so, isn't that? Uh, isn't that holding the Democratic Party hostage, if you will, if you're like, if my candidate doesn't win – and I mean, I've been through processes where my candidate didn't win in the primary, and I still you know, voted for the nominee, supported the nominee wholeheartedly. I remember the first Absolutely. time I ever voted. I voted for Tom Harkin. Love Tom Harkin. Bill Clinton won. Hey, Bill Clinton, great job. Better than what we would have had. And, of course, George H.W. Bush would be way better than what we currently have now. Um so that's like holding a hostage. Uh, um, I, I wonder about I that. I agree. But, I mean, they could say the same thing about about yeah. those people who don't want to elect Bernie. I mean, it's a, it's a very, it's, you know, it's hard is, to talk. Is it don't want to elect Bernie or don't feel the American people would elect Bernie? Because I heard a Republican consultant, I want to say it was Rick Wilson, you know, this is someone who obviously does not agree with Bernie Sanders, but he said, you know what? Bernie Sanders, if he becomes president, he won't get anything done, but he won't put the presidency asunder like Donald Trump is. He would sit there for four years, he'd rail against everything, and like, you know, nothing would get passed because nothing would get through the Senate. Um, and, and, but it would not be risky. And that was him basically saying why he is a never Trumper. Would vote for Bernie Sanders over Donald Trump, and I, I think that's where you know most Democrats would be. It'd be like, well, I'm not that worried because 
you know, nothing to get past anyway. And that, that's kind of a fear of electing to somebody too far outside of the, the political center in that you really might not get anything done because you're not going to win the Senate unless you've got a plan to win the Senate. Um, you, you've got to have somebody that can actually sort of either paint around the edges and do small things or somehow reach across the aisle, which in our current political environment, that's hard to fathom as well. Um, Especially with Bernie Sanders. Yeah, well, I mean anybody, you know, <laughs> even somebody that wants anybody, to reach across the aisle. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the the Senate that Joe Biden grew up in the seventies and eighties just doesn't exist anymore. Um, probably a far better body than we have today because people could work at times on things. I mean, you know, but th- that's just not what we have now. We have to have some kind of reset, and I don't think we can have that reset with Donald Trump in office. We probably couldn't have that reset with Bernie Sanders in office. Um, Tim. What same question? If if it becomes well, a contested convention, what do you do? Well, I'm gonna first of all say we are not gonna have a brokered convention. We haven't had one since 1952. But on the off ch- well, chance that we did, and it was the scenario you described, where Bernie Sanders uh, had the most delegates and the polling showed that he was clearly going to lose the general election we would be at a no-win scenario there would be nothing we could do i don't think uh because if we didn't give the guy with the most delegates the nomination uh trump plus all the republicans plus Senator Sanders and his supporters would be screaming, once again, it was stolen from us, and we'd lose the popular vote to Trump, I would think, in that case. And secondly, if we did give him the nomination, we'd lose that way, too. So um, I would say we would be faced with a no-win scenario, and we'd just have to do the best that we could under the circumstances, whatever that would be. Um, but I, I wouldn't say a way to win the election then. At Here all. is here's what you do. If it were to be a contested convention, there's no way you could give it to a second place or a third place finisher. Here is what you'd have to do. You'd have to say, look, this is um, a battle between two polar entities and the way they operate in politics. We've got to give it to a top-shelf leader, somebody who's proven that they are willing to take Donald Trump on, whether it's in the you know chamber of Congress or if it's in the Oval Office. She's not afraid to rip up his speech. You make the nominee Nancy Pelosi, and it's Pelosi versus Trump for the presidency. And, and, and that's what I would do if it was okay. contested convention. <laughs> and, I don't, and I think that's somebody that a lot of the Bernie supporters might be willing to say, okay, I get no. you because that is the battle no. of wheels, and, no, no, and, and no. that's where you go. Nope, 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 nope. nope. I, because it, they're, they're, they're going to accept one thing only, Bernie Sanders getting the nomination. 
That's all they're going to accept. They're not going to how accept. How do the Bernie it. Sanders feel about – how do the, the Bernie Sanders supporters feel about Nancy Pelosi? I know she does have detractors from the left. Is that where the core of the detractors come from? Well, it doesn't matter about that. It's going to be yeah, Bernie or nobody. That's what they're going to say. We got the most delegates. Our guy's number one. He should be the nominee. It was stolen from him before. Blah blah. You know they're going to say all of that. And you know stolen. they're going to stick to their guns, or they're going to walk yeah. out of the convention. It, it wasn't stolen from him before because Hillary Clinton had way I, more. We know that. We know that. Yeah. But they, yeah. they, you know, that's the gospel to, to some of I mean, them. And you sound like a climate denier, or a Trumpkin, if you believe that kind of math. No, uh, I, mean, I don't believe it. Oh, I know you know you don't. I don't I'm believe saying. it, but a lot no. of them do believe it, and they still no. believe it. And, and Catherine, next question on this. Are a lot of Bernie supporters the mirror image just from the left of a lot of Donald Trump's hardcore support that <laughs> can't confuse with the facts? Yeah, I, uh, I'm i going to hesitate to go quite that far, but there is a <laughs> there is a – a little bit of, you know, like you said earlier, a little bit of cultish uh, devotion. And, I mean, to be honest, they're, they would be right. He got all the delegates. He should be the nominee. But well, not all the delegates. In, I mean, if you, you have to hit well, a threshold, he got, and he wouldn't hit right, that threshold. Right. Okay. He got no. enough delegates. So he should be the don. Now, if the, if this were to come to come to be, that they, they would be right. The problem is that we're we're in the era of Trump, and it's just the rules are different now, and the, or the not the rules, but the the um, climate is different, and maybe these these uh, legacy guidelines and regulations and traditions are no longer applicable because of the you know great division in the country and i don't know i it's 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 very troubling and concerning and i i um but you can't you can't really deny them if that if that were the case like they're right if he has the he has the correct number of delegates and they but, fought hard but, for it then you can understand why they would feel that way well no, the correct number is the threshold if you don't have the threshold um then you don't have the threshold of numbers then you don't have the correct number so that's what i'm saying is you if he has the actual you know number of delegates that's one thing but but i'm saying he's falls short of that well, let's kind of talk about one more topic that we've been meaning to talk for, took about forever until our guest comes on, and that's this Georgia 14 congressional election to replace Tom Graves. Um, there are just more candidates getting this race all the time, but it seems like one candidate is getting the lion's share of attention, um, and that's the candidate that was actually going to run in a totally different district just a few months ago. Uh, Tim, what's your take on this uh, 14th Congressional District race? Well, we've got, what, eight Republicans and one Democrat or nine Republicans and one Democrat running at the moment. 
Uh, we sure do have a lot of interlopers, including the the lady you just mentioned, uh, coming in from the outside. Thank goodness we did get one person running as a Democrat in the race, uh, so that you know we'll we'll have somebody on the ballot. Um, it's going to be a going to be a knockdown drag out on the Republican side, guys. I don't, I don't know if that'll do any splitting of the party or anything like that because it's such a um, red district up here. You would have to still think, even if they had a bloodbath <laughs> of a primary, that uh, their nominee would still win uh the election rather handily in November. Um, And I would imagine all of the Republican candidates are going to see if they can out-Trump each other. That should come as no surprise to anyone. And, uh, you know, I wish I could say we had a shot at this district, but I would say if we get 35% of the vote in November, we will have done very well the way this district is laid out. Now, do, do either one of you see us doing any better than that up here? Catherine, your thoughts first? I don't think we have a shot at it, but I'm glad uh, there's a Democrat running in just one. And... uh you know, there's always there's always the chance. You know, that's why it's good to have someone running because there's always a chance that something outrageous will happen and the Republicans won't vote for the candidate. I mean, it's it, it, it it's always good to be prepared for that. So yeah, but uh, I don't think, I, I don't think there's much of a shot. It's good. Yeah, to show. what do you think, David? Uh, and actually, uh, according to uh, Politics One, they have Kevin Van Ostale or Osdale and Sarah Ott. Both are running. Only one has a website at this point, so they actually have two announced candidates. But um, oh, so oh. we got to wait. I didn't know about her, so she has entered uh, recently. I know they were trying to recruit a lady. I don't know if that's her. Uh, that's an environmentalist. That was a yeah. big thing. Yeah, um, I don't know. I and mean, we'll have to see, you know, obviously she says she's a teacher. Get a website or some type of presence online so we'll know a little more. Well, let's kind of shift okay. gears and um, bring our guest on. Welcome back to the um, show, Mr. David Mark. Hey, good to be back with you guys. Yes. Well, David, first thing, I, I think since the last time you've been on, you've kind of taken a new day job at uh, the Washington Examiner. Uh, Tell us about what you're doing there day to day. Well, yes, I've been with the Examiner for about 15, 16 months, basically right right before the midterm elections in 2018. And I am basically the political editor there. So I oversee the daily campaign coverage, three reporters out on the campaign trail, and then two covering Congress. So keeps keeps me plenty busy. Try to write whenever I can, but mostly editing other people's work these days. Oh yes, well we know you've done some other pieces too. We're going to ask you a lot about those, but uh, since we're talking about Georgia 14, 
one of the pieces I noticed that came up uh, that you recently wrote in, for the Washington Examiner was about Georgia 14 and Tom Graves um, retiring from Congress somewhat unexpectedly. <laughs> Is that why y'all picked up on that outside of Northwest Georgia because it was so out of the blue and unexpected? It was. I have a fascination with House seats, and particularly when members with safe seats retire, because most of them want to stay there for 20, 30 years and really dig in. And Graves, I think he's like 49 years old or so, he's got the safest red seat possible. It voted for Trump by with like 75 percent of the vote, something, something crazy like that. And his seat wasn't in jeopardy, but I think what he found was being in the minority in the House of Representatives isn't a whole lot of fun. You go, he had some real power. He was a so-called cardinal on one of the appropriations subcommittees, basically the panels that oversee spending for the country. That's real power. And once he went to the minority, he didn't really have that anymore. So I can see why somebody like that maybe wouldn't want to stick around so long. Yeah, and that may be it. And I think his wife's also retiring from her day job because she actually didn't go to Washington with him apparently, you know, on a daily basis. Uh, so oh, maybe they're figuring they retire yeah. together. Yeah, and that's not unusual for members sometimes for the wives. This some bit plenty of female members, spouses to stay back in the district. D.C. isn't for everybody, and maybe just deciding one to do something else. But I really think being in the House minority probably had a considerable amount to do with all of this. Yes, and I don't know, I guess following up, I don't know how much you followed all the candidates jumping in this race. Um, have you paid any attention, and if so, what's your thoughts? i got to admit, I haven't seen, followed this one so closely. I tend to get, I, I admit I get more of to speak closer to the primaries, and we got, we've got to, what, a few months, about six months or so, till the primary in August, if I recall. So uh, I don't know. All I know is it's a red seed. It's likely to stay Republican. So that's where the real competition is on the Republican side. Yeah, so far the biggest storyline has been Marjorie Green versus the Taco House. And in my book, the Taco House wins every time. Um, but <laughs> okay. let me shift gears to a different house seat before I pass along to Catherine and Tim. Um, and that would be another piece you wrote about that special election that uh, when Elijah Cummings, a uh, great representative from the um, Baltimore area in Maryland, passed away, um, they had a special election, and uh, I guess Ben Jealous, um, or was it Quasi and Fume, a former Quasi and Fume uh, won the special election, set to return, and of course, Baltimore's kind of been a lightning rod because of how disparaging Donald Trump was to the city. Um, Kind of how does all that play out with Kwasi and Fume returning after serving as the chair of the NAACP? Yeah, this is a really interesting story because Kwasi and Fume held the seat for about nine years. He was first elected in 1986, and of course that was during the days of the old Democratic majority. Excuse me, when Democrats had that rule that majority for going up for 40 straight years, so it was a different time. He ended up leaving. Congress shortly after Republicans took over control in 1995, about a year later, a little over that, when the conservative, it was conservative tide was on the ascendancy, he got offered a job with heading the NAACP, which he held for about eight years or so. <clears throat> By all accounts, did a pretty good job there. 
uh, he has been looking for a return to political life, and now he's there. So he'll return to Congress 24 years or so <clears throat> after leaving. And, of course, the district he'll represent was infamously attacked by President Trump, and I'll give my own views here, one of the most shameful things that he's done in office in criticizing an American city. He's supposed to represent the entire country. <clears throat> and I admit it's, uh, it's a bit personal because my aunt and uncle lived in Baltimore for a number of years. My, my aunt worked for the Economic Development Commission trying to bring in, in business. My, uh, my uncle was a volunteer in the schools with music after he retired. So they devote a lot of time to the community, and to see it attacked that way was really unpleasant because every place has their ups and downs. But why not try and make it better rather than just disparaging us? Certainly so. Well, I'm going to pass this uh, over to Catherine, and then she'll give it to Tim. Catherine? Thanks for being on with us tonight. We really appreciate your time. Um, I wanted sure to thing. ask you, you wrote this great article about um, Donald Trump's impeachment and how it's helping him. And I think we all feared that would happen um, yeah. if he was if he wasn't uh, ultimately convicted. And I think I, you know I can't disagree with your points, but look, if you could share a little bit of that with our listeners and why you think this is helping him. Well, the polling for Trump has only gone up since his impeachment, and it's getting peri- perilously close to fifty percent. In some polls, which is real danger zone, <clears throat> excuse me, for the Democrats in terms of trying to beat him in fall 2020. He's not there yet, and he probably won't stay up there. But by all accounts, Trump can play the victim here and make it seem like he's being attacked by the deep state and unethical Democratic opponent. I'm certainly not agreeing with that point of view, but that's what he's getting across. Having said that, you can make the argument it was still worthwhile for House Democrats to push impeachment just because they thought it was the right thing to do, and history will show it, and you just couldn't let that kind of behavior go by unaccounted for. Maybe they could have gone for censure. I I don't know what that would have really meant. They would not have gotten any Republican votes for it. So it's always it was always a different thing. Maybe – only thing I would say about House Democrats, maybe they could have – waited a bit longer and waited out some of these subpoenas to for, compel the testimony of some of these, these characters like John Bolton. But they, they had to do something. Oh, I agree with you. I mean, I, I think it was the right thing to do. It's just unfortunate that uh, it's booing, it's giving him a little bit of, you know, lift in the polls. But he's bound to do something to bring those <laughs> poll numbers down. Before November, we can only hope, right? Or I mean, not right. like we don't want him to do anything bad, but uh, it's it's a terrible um, for someone who's a lifelong Democrat. It's a terrible um, situation for I feel like I'm in. Like I want him to fail so he get doesn't get reelected, but I don't want anything bad to happen to our country. So it's a it's a very tough uh, circumstance. So what do you think? Uh, what do you think could change this? Uh, well, I mean, I is think it just once, a question of – go ahead. Yeah, just once the primaries really get going and we get closer to a nominee, 
of course, it's going to become more of a one-on-one race between Trump and whoever that person is. And especially if it's somebody like, say, Michael Bloomberg, they will have – he'll have all the resources, all the money in the world to go after Trump, which is a good reason for potentially nominating him. But I, I always thought impeachment was basically a wash politically. Neither side was like to really gain much of an advantage there. People who like President Trump were not going to be dissuaded by any evidence offered by the House managers. Critics of Trump already had their views, and it just always seemed like people were pretty dug in at this point. Yeah, but I but I think you're right. It was still the right thing to do to examine it and uh, you know bring it forward and let the you know let the cards fall as they as they would. Yeah, sometimes you just have to. It's just like how, how a lot of Trump critics say you know say we're the Republicans. Why won't they put their own political careers on the line and just stand up to Trump to do the right thing? In a way, it's kind of the inverse of that. May not help in the immediate future. It might even hurt. It's possible, but sometimes you just got to do what you think is right and let history sort it out and be proven on the right side of things. It might be years later. It's not not very satisfying in the short term, but you can take pride saying you did what you thought was right and that's it. You're going forward. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. And now I'm going to pass it to Tim for his questions. Uh, good evening, Mr. Mark. Thank you for being on with us tonight again. Um, Great to be with you. In 2008, Rudy Giuliani decided he was going to run for president, and he was uh, bumping heads with a couple of heavyweights in Romney and, and, and John McCain, and so he decided to do something a bit different. He decided to campaign in larger states, bypassing Iowa pretty much altogether and only, I'd say, running half-heartedly in New Hampshire. Uh, He kept saying, we're going to do well in Florida. That's where I'm drawing the line, and that's where I'm going to seize control of this thing. Well, as we know, his strategy did not work. Now we have Mike Bloomberg, who has effectively skipped the first four contests and is focusing on Super Tuesday on March the 3rd. Now, I know he is spending money by the boatloads, but isn't this strategy just as risky now as Giuliani's strategy was a dozen years ago? I actually think it's a different scenario for a couple of reasons. One is Bloomberg kind of lucked out with the disaster in Iowa with the caucuses in which it seems like Pete Buttigieg came out on top narrowly with the delegates. But effectively, nobody got the benefit that the Iowa caucus winner usually gets that kind of balance. So that's already one out of four early contests off the stage. New Hampshire – Bernie Sanders got a win, but it was pretty narrow, so it's not exactly made him a front runner in a lot of people's eyes. We'll see what happens in the next two contests in South Carolina, Nevada, and then South Carolina. So I think there's a long way to go. I think there's a way to reboot it. I think the big, the biggest thing is well, two things. One is Michael Bloomberg is actually out campaigning fairly aggressively. He's got a pretty busy schedule. Rudy Giuliani was doing it half-heartedly. I remember going to see him 
in New Hampshire that cycle in 2007, and he just would get out of his car with his bodyguards and expect people to come up to him and kind of kiss his ring like he was the godfather or something, kind of some of the personality traits that, that we see on display now when he's acting as Trump's lawyer. Bloomberg is actually out there hustling, trying to get votes. But the biggest factor, of course, is the money. And that's really the main argument for Bloomberg. It's not that he's a real dynamic candidate. He was New York City mayor for 12 years. That's a pretty good credential for running for president under any circumstances. But he's got the money to fund. Uh, he's got basically a bottomless campaign account, and that's something Democrats ought to give a hard look to. So uh, for those and other reasons, I actually think he has a pretty good shot at this. Mm. Um if you were rating his chances uh, on a scale of one to ten, what are we talking about here? Well, I, six maybe. <laughs> it's and that's pretty optimistic. But I really think we'll see what happens with Joe Biden. Uh, he certainly did not have a couple good outings in Iowa, New Hampshire. He's got to win in South Carolina. He's also got to do pretty well in Nevada. The pressure is on him. But even if he wins. In one or both places, he's got a lot of money problems. He only had $8 million in the bank at the end of last month. And in a presidential campaign, you can burn through $8 million pretty quickly on charter mm-hmm. jets, get out the vote. Uh, when you're trying to campaign at Super Tuesday in 14 different places that are voting, it's not a whole lot of money. Where Bernie Sanders, Pete Buttigieg have at least three to four times that amount. Amy Klobuchar, she came in third in the New Hampshire primary. Respectable. Got her on the map. She raised some money, but she's still got a long way to go. Buttigieg, he's an interesting guy. I'm not sure he's going to make it all the way, but you know, I wouldn't rule him out. So I just think Bloomberg, for the main reason he's got the money, that's usually why campaigns end, presidential campaigns end, because they run out of money in the primaries. It's, it's pretty mm-hmm. simple. And he's got that, and that's that's what may make all the difference. Okay. Now I'm going to turn completely around and ask you about another person uh, who is not a politician, but you have written about him. Uh, okay. And I'm, I'm a massive baseball fan, and as a matter of fact, it's my favorite sport. But the president yeah. weighed in on Pete Rose, as you know. Um. Is it possible, because we're a political show, I want to ask a political question about this. Is it possible that the president sees support of Rose as a political winner? It's interesting. I was wondering why he weighed in on that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, you know, Some of the more cynical views are that he identifies with cheaters, and that's why he's on Rose's <laughs> side. I'm not necessarily – Saying that, but I got some responses on Twitter. Those are some of the responses I got to that article. I'm not sure how much a, a political issue it is. I doubt a lot of young people could even name who Pete Rose is, unless they're diehard baseball fans. And there, there's just some interesting connections that I pointed out in the article. And it's not to allege anything. It's just interesting. The the uh, lawyer who wrote the report that got Rose banned and came up with all the evidence of him betting on baseball as a player and manager was John Dowd, Washington, mm-hmm. D.C., big-time criminal defense lawyer who later represented Trump in the Russia investigation, Robert Mueller investigation, now is representing 
uh, Igor Fruman, one of these characters tied up with Rudy Giuliani in Ukraine. So uh, not to allege anything, I just thought those were some interesting connections to point out. But uh, I don't know how political it is, but maybe at the margin with some older voters, it helps people who think Pete Rose should be in the Hall of Fame. It's, it's a difficult question. That's, that's a whole other discussion, whether he should be or not. And with that, I'm going to send it back to David. David? Yes, and David, I was going to kind of make a comment and give you maybe some direction where that's coming from, where people say that he identifies with cheaters. Um, a few months ago, I listened to Rick Riley's book, uh, Commander and Cheat. And Rick Riley is you know, a sports writer. He's not a political writer. And he really goes through this and how Donald Trump, in particular with golf, um, has approached you know, his life in golf, if you will. And it's really a fascinating book that explains a lot of Donald Trump's past. And I think some of that comes from there. And I, I think it may be one of the best books to read, better than a lot of political books about Donald Trump because the way he researches it from this – angle that's not political so you could you know begin even if you agreed with republican party politics you could still explore the character of donald trump in a non-political environment if that makes sense yeah that's fascinating that's something that people can identify with too there's golf people there are democrats who play golf republicans who play golf and independents down the middle etc so i think a lot of people can identify with that and it's kind of a Rorschach test, I suppose. If you think that he's on the level, you'll forgive him for that. You say, oh, that's just Trump being Trump. If you're not a fan, you can say, well, he cheats at one thing. Why wouldn't he cheat getting elected and doing all these other, other awful things? So it's a real insight into his character. That, that's, I, that's actually on my reading list. I need to, need to get to that one. Yeah, move it up. Yeah, it's, it's okay. a good one. Yeah, um, well um, – David, again, thanks for coming on the show. Um, obviously, we talked about the Washington Examiner, but we know you've written for some other places, probably have some social media uh, postings. Um, where can people read some of your work? Yeah, best place is to go to uh, Twitter, at DC, and you can see most of my work there. And also find me on LinkedIn and Facebook as well. Yeah, well, um, thanks again for coming on the show. All right. Thanks for having me. Anytime. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Thank yes. you. Bye. All right. David Mark at Washington Examiner. Actually, it was perfect that it segued into our uh, topic about Georgia 14. So many candidates there. Let's kind of maybe get just a minute thought or two um, on that little Facebook feud between um, Marjorie Green and um, uh, an establishment in Calhoun, Georgia that she kind of went back and forth with. Uh, Tim, what are your thoughts on that? <laughs> well, they uh, they just basically, you know, asked her to move in another direction, and she claimed it was political, and they, of course, said, no, it's not political. And uh this kind of stuff's going to come out of her. If you look at her yard signs, I mean, they they say help her defeat socialism. I I didn't know, you know, like where I live, Menlo, Georgia, was a hotbed of socialism, but I guess you live and learn. But that's the kind of candidate she's going to be. 
she's a scorched earth type, and and you're gonna see her in some more scrapes like that. Not uh, this time it was with a restaurant. Next time it's gonna be some of the other candidates. So you know, get ready for it, guys, because this is not gonna be the last controversial thing that we hear. I'd heard this is just gonna be the beginning of it. Yeah, I think I told y'all, I think oh, she's got a little Sarah Palin, a little bit of um, Marsha Blackburn in her. Um, likes to stir up controversies, not going to necessarily be the most yeah. well-versed person on the issues. And, and basically, you know, I think they said we were running out of seating because the, when she reserved it, we thought they were going to be there at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. It ended up, mm-hmm. you know, running into our supper hour. We couldn't accommodate. I don't know. I wasn't there. Although, I'll tell you what. There's a chance that her little crowd came in with build the wall and send them all back to Mexico, and the establishment is run by Latino peoples, and they might have taken offense. And what is so, you know, you, you just kind of are galled by some of these folks is they just don't understand how Hispanic people would be offended by something like that. But it is offensive to them. Uh, and you know to, to say these kind of things, the wall is racially charged. It just is. Uh, Catherine, mm-hmm. what's kind of your take from what you've heard about it? Well, I just think it's funny that these are probably. I think I said this when we were talking about it via text. These are probably the same people who think that bakers shouldn't have to make cakes for uh, same-sex marriages. But when it comes to them, when it comes down to them wanting to have a event at a, a restaurant, they they take a sense when they're told no. For whatever reason. So I just Yeah. You know, I, I, I always the way I always think about this, well, if you don't want me here, if you don't want my money, you don't want our our money, well well then we'll go somewhere else. Like what? Why would you get upset about that? Like I mean, sure, it messed up your plans, but, like, you know, <laughs> they were able to find it out in time, uh, and and they were able to move their event to another place and with barely a hiccup. So, uh, yeah, so what's I, the... the... The deal is, I think she's the way she is, and, and, and you're going to, uh, you know... She she draws lightning and, and throws lightning bolts. That's her type. That's the way yeah. she's going to be. Yeah, I, I think she's probably going to be in the runoff for that race. Oh, I think um, so. She's got a fortune to spend. Yeah, and, uh, it, it just, I mean, I'll be honest. Now, the 6th District's probably not as friendly for her brand of politics as the 14th may be. But the way, mm-hmm. the way the Republican Party's going... I'm not so sure if she would have done her routine in the 6th District. She couldn't have taken care and handle because that seems to be what they like. They like mm. the, the most in-your-face. I passed a car today, had some homemade Trump sign, and under it it said something about the liberals. I mean it was one of those, I'm going to own the libs. I'm voting for Trump because I want to annoy people, which I never understand that. I mean shouldn't you stand for things because you think it's going to make – your life, your community, your country, your world better, not just because you want to annoy people. That seems like a terrible reason to stand for something. I just want to annoy people. Eh, it's just silly. 
Um, but but I see some of that in her. He wants to in your face, you know, um, whatever it may be. Um, and, and there's more politicians like that. That's a lot about you know Sarah Palin's real American Americans, you know, kind of stuff came from that. Well, um, been good to get back to the regular time, and I guess next week we'll do it again. Until then, been the Kudzu Vine. Good night, guys. Good night, y'all. Good night, everybody. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom? Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.